Welcome to GeoThoughts Conversations. I'm Drew Bush. GeoThink is the largest grant investigating two-way exchanges of locational information between citizens and their city governments and makes possible countless collaborations and discussions. This month, GeoThoughts Conversations brings you a look at one such conversation that took place this past January on the wintry downtown campus of McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. We sat down with GeoThink Principal Investigator Renee Sieber, Associate Professor McGill University's Department of Geography and School of Environment, and Daniel Pare, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication and School of Information Studies at the University of Ottawa, where he also serves as an Associate Director at the Institute for Science, Society, and Policy. The topics? the nature of democracy and public participation, and later, how city platforms that utilize open data impact democratic processes and citizen engagement. Often hailed as a panacea for making government transparent and the political process more open and inclusive, Pare and Sieber discussed the inaccuracies in this narrative, along with how open data has changed the roles of cities and citizens in today's democracies. To start us off, Sieber dispels the idea that democracy itself requires public participation and discusses the wide spectrum of democratic systems that exist. Well, it's important to note that democracy and does not require public participation. Uh, we'd like to, in Canada and the U.S., think that it does, that in fact you can't possibly conceive of democracy without public participation, but indeed um, you can, for example, create a technocratic democracy in which you have experts and, you know, we're in universities, we're training experts and we don't always like to be disagreed with. So we could be part of the problem where you know we want to create democracy where smart people are making decisions about what is best for the public at large uh, uh, how we best uh, do service delivery how fight to ensure that it had a voice uh, a voice that was meaningfully counted that influenced policy that influenced policy in a way that improved the lives of the people who had the voice. So I think that's very important. It's important to also note that when we talk about participation, we're often talking about participation that connects to impact. Um, in a cynical vi vision of democracy, uh, you know, you go out and you let people vent, um, in part because then you can check off the box, box for participation. And also, as Sherry Arnstein wrote about in 1969 in her Ladder of Citizen Empowerment, uh, it can even be considered therapy, or even most cynically, it's not what well, she considered it non-participation because the... Uh, the politicians and the bureaucrats would say, um, I have no intention of listening to people, but uh, somebody says I have to, so I'm going to do this token or non-token approach, you know, not even participation at all. 
so we'll set, you know, we'll set up a request for comments. Yeah. So people can comment, but we're not going to look at it. Yes, yeah. yes, ex exactly. Perry agrees with Sieber's point, and then explains that the amount of faith governments put in the public is one of the key underlying issues in democratic theory throughout history. It depends on the model of democracy that one of the model of democracy that one is trying to pursue. Uh, at another level as well, it, it pertains to the sort of the, the eternal question of how much faith does one put in the public? Because one of the, the key underlying issues in terms of democratic theory throughout history has been this question of the public. Um, where, you know, so on the one ex on the one extreme, sort of saying yes, um, the public, the individual is is too busy with their day-to-day -day tasks uh, to, to, to pay much attention to what's going on at higher sort of levels of society and the political domain. And it's unrealistic to expect that they would take much interest in that and moreover, they probably don't have the expertise. So as you know, in line with what Renee was saying earlier, let the experts deal with it. They're well positioned. And then, you know, and then variations on that in terms of, you know, whether it's really necessary to come out once every sort of set period of time to, to cast a, a ballot or not. Um, at the other extreme, the more sort of the, the more technocratic view um, is there. So the, or sorry, or or this idea in terms of saying that yes, no, uh, they are informed, they can make decisions and speak. So you have that that tension that that plays out in in many regards. But it's that eternal question in terms of um, how much faith does one put in in the public, um, or phrased otherwise, sort of you know, is the public interest the same as the public's interest? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and one of the ironies of a technocratic um, model of democracy, and the reason why I bring that up as a model is because we're talking about technology, and technology can actually make some of these things worse and not better, is that um, participation actually becomes a problem, not a part of a process in a technocratic democracy. Uh, both Frank Fisher has written about this in his book on technocracies, and also Yevgeny Morozov writes about this in his book, um, click here, Chris. Um, that what happens in a technocracy is the, pub is the experts say, ah, oh, you know, the reason that the public wants to quote-unquote participate is because we have insufficiently communicated our goals to the public. So it's a communication problem. It's not an issue of process. So let's bring them in so we can better tell them in this unidirectional way, tell them what they need to hear. And the, the participation becomes the public saying, yes, we agree with you that you're smart and that <laughs> You've explained it to us in a kind of a therapeutic sense of yeah. mirroring what we heard you say rather than, oh, wait a minute, this isn't what we want at all. What we want is we can't fit within the framework that you've given to us. Uh, we haven't agreed to your solutions yet. We all need to go back to the drawing board. Yeah. You, ha you should have listened to us earlier. It's quite possible in this... Um, this realm of, of citizen participation via these varying Web 2 platforms, whether it's active or passive participation, whether it's active in terms of you're using Web 2 technologies to solicit people's opinions or you're passively harvesting people's locations and comments about other things, and you're saying, oh, now we're, we're ascribing the intent. We know what people actually want. Uh, 
is that uh, it allows for even more opportunities for experts to take charge rather than the public, even though the public thinks they're more directly participating. I then make, apparently, a rookie mistake, proposing that perhaps technology isn't necessarily the solution, but is just another tool. My statement provokes disagreement. Uh, no. No. No, 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 no. No. Not a solution. Uh, otherwise, you know, unless you want to cast it in light of a possible solution out there looking for a problem, um, uh, possibly a problem that's creating the need to find new solutions, mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's it's not a panacea, mm -hmm. right? And it is something that's quite complex. And I think we, t we tend to have this propensity oftentimes to oversimplify uh, or in sort of the dominant sort of mainstream narratives to oversimplify. Um, so, I mean, and that's on both sides, right? Not just the utopians, but also the, the dystopians. I think, you know, uh, I think same thing, you know, to play, you know, the equal critique to, to Morozov, that sometimes there's, you know, gross oversimplification in terms of, of his critique of the issues and stuff, right? Mm -hmm. But nobody wants to get into those complexities because that doesn't make for sort of a, an interesting sort of story that, that can be sort of quickly told and, and, mm -hmm. and get out there and easily sort of consumed, right? But I mean, it, and, e and even then, in terms of the idea with the solutions uh, as well, the other challenge with that, I would say, is that, um, oftentimes in the process of doing that, we, we, we create or we perpetuate sort of this black box, no, black box notion of the technology, right? And so, and I think um, a good example or, or a good recent articulation of that, although he was building on a fairly long established history of sociological thought, was Lawrence Lessig's book, The Code is Law, right? So this idea in terms of saying that, hey, we need to look at, at code writers because, the, you know, the, what, what's being programmed by, by those writing code is basically regulators of our behavior in an online domain. We don't often see that. We don't often think about the ways within which um, Facebook, Google Drive, um, any other sort of online you know, application regulates our behavior in particular ways. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and in Lessig's case at this time, this fits into, again, sort of discourses about uh, democratization and such. If we think back to the mid to late 1990s, the dominant thinking was that right, uh, not only should the state not try to regulate anything that's pertaining to the internet, but that it simply cannot, right? Mm -hmm. So they just they are putting you know, put all your faith in the private in the private sector in the private system. And one of the key insights from Lessig's work at that time was simply to point and say, well, it's all well and dandy that you're you know dissatisfied and distrustful of government, but why do you think private industry would be any more trustworthy than government, right? Um, and so that sort of tension is there as well. So I think, the, I think we, we need to approach any sort of discourses of technology as a solution um, with extreme caution. I'm disagreeing with the use of the word tool. Mm -hmm. yeah. This follows on what Daniel just said. Um, that's like saying sitting in a city council meeting is the same as contributing <clears throat> uh, information via feedback tool from an open 311 system. They're not the same. The medium has an impact. Uh, the medium has an impact, for example, in the way that Facebook can regulate your news feed. The medium has an impact in uh, Twitter, where it regulates the sheer amount of characters that you can uh, contribute. I know there's this ongoing debate now whether we should rise to 10,000 characters as opposed to 140 characters in no. Twitter. Uh, but. Uh, there are varying ways through the code, through the, the way that you communicate, through the political economy of the communication, 
in which this is not a tool. Uh, the technology itself has can have a profound impact on the way you uh, communicate ideas. And we're not talking about here's a pothole, you know, please come fix it, although that could be an issue in that the uh, participant uh, thinks, hey, I submitted it, it should be fixed immediately. So there is an immediacy that's embedded in the tools. But uh, we live in very fractious times. Uh, we're talking about very important issues about race and class, about in, uh, income disparities, immigration, climate change. You can't necessarily reduce that to 140 characters. You can't rely on uh, a Web 2.0 social media platform like Facebook not to muck around with the <clears throat> with its inter its algorithmic interpretation of what you actually meant. So to some extent, we sterilize some of these topics or we amplify the animosity of these topics so that <clears throat> people say, I'm gonna use these platforms to hate on each other. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it, it fits in as well in terms of you know, building on that, some of Jody Dean's work on communicative capitalism, right? Where this idea in terms of we have uh, you know the, the information that we're exposed to online. So you know, the, so you wind up a our own on one level, sort of our own echo chambers, where right uh, the, there may be a degree of an, uh, anonymity or not, but which we become much more sort of uh, I'll say less polite than perhaps we would be if we were engaging in discussion face to face. But also at another level, so you you know a false sense. What, what we're you know developing is a a false sense of um, awareness. Or this idea. So I've read I've read a couple headlines. Uh, online, maybe a couple of tweets. Um, yeah, well, I know about what's going on, but I don't really know about what's going on. I know sort of the headlines. I haven't dug any further. Um, tied to that, sort of the ongoing sort of concerns about sort of the, and again, coming back to sort of the, the ideas of, of democracy as well, is that, you know, um, a key dimension of democracy is, is not just being informed, but also acting. And so I know sort of Jody Dean, so in Jody Dean's writings, that's one of the things that she's been, and others, you know, one of the things that she's been very concerned about has been this idea of saying that us being sat in front of a computer screen and sort of clicking away, um, that that more often than not risks being sort of seen as a substitute for actually engaging and actually acting, right? So, you know, clicking like on, on a Facebook. Sure looks you know, like we're engaging, looks doesn't like, it? It looks like we're engaging and it has that sort of false sense that we're engaging, but perhaps not so much. Yeah. Right. So take me to like a concrete example of an issue that you've seen sort of that dynamic playing out where there's a difference between, because of the technology, between what it means to actually be acting on the issue or just sort of being informed about a very, it. A very recent one, mm -hmm. the refugee crisis is happening now in the Mediterranean, right? Um, how many people have clicked, yes, you know, share this image to support or like this like this particular thing, right, or, or support the refugees versus the numbers of people that have actually sort of left their home to get out to go try and work with local communities that are trying to to, to welcome refugees. All right, so that level of engagement is there, you know, it's not to sort of belittle, say, you know, that don't do any other stuff online, but it's to say that there's a difference that's there. And that notion of sort of online sort of clicking, sort of, you know, uh, yes, like, yes, share, yes, support, but that you're verbalizing, right? Um, it gives an illusion of engagement, mm -hmm. say, right? As opposed to sort of physically getting off one's backside and, mm -hmm. and going and engaging at that level. 
I asked Perry to give me a concrete example of an issue where new technology is shaping public engagement. Later, I asked him how one can hope to analyze shifting and varied democratic processes. Well, I think I come back to in terms of its impact on a democracy. Then again, we come back to being pedantic, but because of, so how are we defining democracy here? Sure. Right, because within that question, um, on the one hand, that may not necessarily, if we think about it sort of in a, in a political sense, sort of political system sense, democracy, the political system aspect may not secondary to that. Mm -hmm. But if we're thinking about particular forms of participation and engagement, mm -hmm. and if you're equating democracy with participation, then yes, that's a more democratic action. It's a more sort of grassroots level action, if you want to put it in, mm -hmm. that, in that regard. Um, a more local example comes from Pamela Robinson's work. <clears throat> we forget sometimes that jurisdictional, jurisdictionality matters. Um, there is a concept in law called standing. Um, sometimes standing for non-lawyers means, well, it, can, it means you're impacted by a decision. <clears throat> uh, sometimes uh, we in planning and geography interpret that as where you live. Um, many local decisions you can't be involved in unless you live in the community or in the city in, um, that the decision pertains to. Um, a big challenge of the software we're working with is anonymity or pseudonymity. Um, and uh, there are uh, uh, arenas in which it is absolutely important to have anonymity and pseudonymity. So I'm not necessarily arguing against that, but what is a city to do when it has to know who's participating? Um, well, you could more easily do it when people were physically there. You could ask them, do you live where, what's your address? It's not so easy when it's uh, Joe Dude 42. <laughs> uh, you know, where does this person live? Um, and if it's neighborhood related, does this person live in the neighborhood? Is this person an expat of the neighborhood? This stuff actually matters. Mm -hmm. It matters legally as well as <clears throat> if you're going to come to some consensus amongst the people in the room, whether it's a virtual or a physical room, you should know if you're talking to other people who actually live in the area are going to be impacted. And a lot of decisions, because they are broadcast on these social, these boundless social media platforms, you actually don't know where people live. You're not necessarily talking to your neighbors. And, you know, in Canada, many times we're acutely aware of this because we don't know how many Americans are on these social media platforms talking about certain ideas that affect us jurisdictionally. Mm -hmm. Sorry. No, it's the issue of territoriality. It's just mm -hmm. it does away with that where we've, our model of citizenship, our thinking about citizenship is, is fundamentally linked to territoriality in many ways. And again, you have this, uh, we have different platforms now that, I don't, don't, they don't do away with it, but mm -hmm. they, they do kind of do away with it, you know, so then that exactly as you're saying, that comes into play in terms of um, if you've got, if you're making some sort of local council decisions uh, that are being sort of some aspect of that decision-making process is being done through online channels, how do we regulate or deal with the notion that, yes, we're perhaps we're getting input from people who are not citizens territorially, but perhaps care about it uh, in spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Which has been one of the key things in terms of the whole discussions around global citizenship. 
or transnational citizenship, right? In terms of um, for certain things, certain causes that that's seen as being a very positive thing. That uh, we're particularly concerned about, you know, labor conditions in another country or environmental degradation in another country, as such. Um, where normally those are not sorts of activities, or historically those are not sorts of activities that somebody residing here would have necessarily been engaged with people, perhaps because they wouldn't have simply known about what was happening mm -hmm. in location B, right? But now they're seeking to have active voices in that regard. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the fact that we append the word global to participation means that one of the assumptions in public participation and its link to democracy is you know where people live. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, for me, um, you know, my family lives in New Hampshire, and New Hampshire is a state that takes great pride in having town hall-style decision-making for almost all the decisions. So I think about, like, when there's an issue in, in the community where my parents live, like walking the dogs on the beach, everybody piles into the town hall, and people sit with the people who agree with them. It's dog walking. You know, dogs tend to elicit <laughs> a lot of... Uh, a lot of interest. Uh, yeah. But as an aside, I mean, dogs are a good example. One of the problems in public participation is how much. Mm -hmm. um, and that is a, that's an uneasy, nego an uneasy negotiation mm -hmm. between the state and the citizen. Mm -hmm. Citizens, they don't necessarily live in places like New Hampshire or Vermont, these states, these U.S. states and that idealize town halls for lots, lots and lots of decisions. Mm -hmm. People don't have time to do this. Now, technology is part of that problem because we're spending more and more time online and we have less and less time for these kinds of public sector civil society engagement, but lots of decisions are boring, but they need to be made. Some decisions are decidedly not boring, but the city or the state may want them to be considered boring, mm -hmm. so the public does not participate. Mm -hmm. It's not easy to find that balance, but the temptation is to think, Yay, technology! It solved all our public participation woes. You can participate from anywhere at any time. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, it's a click of the button. It's very easy. And once again, it goes to this issue of nuance. And even with the technology, do you want to be bombarded by a forum on everything? Our conversation continues in a number of different directions. Before I prompt Sieber and Perry for their final thoughts on how our age of democracy compares with other historical periods. Well, I participation in a democracy is messy and it takes time. And that's, those aren't bad things, they are just things. Um, we might like efficiency in government, but many parts of government should be deliberately inefficient because effectiveness is not the same thing as efficiency. We want government to listen to us. We want government to listen to the poorest among us. That can make for a messy government, but we want that. So our challenge is to ensure that the technology 
uh, furthers the messiness and we don't look at it as a way to streamline democracy and public participation. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely agree. And I think likewise, it's sort of, you know, um, we want that inefficiency there, uh, but we also need to think in terms of safeguards, in terms of we, we tend to think in terms of when we think about um, the role of technology in, in sort of democratic processes. Um, we all have sort of, you know, particular events, particular processes in mind, but the one thing, you know, uh, the history of technological change, you know, the core aspect of that history that we cannot overlook is the unintended consequences, the unintended outcomes, right? Um, and so in one example, you know, the killer example here is that, you know, it comes to mind, obviously, is sort of the, the breadcrumbs that we leave online through all of these things, right? So on the, on the one hand, so, you know, the classic example, on the one hand, yes, it's great, we can use these technologies to mobilize, to participate, to engage. By the way, you can be tracked and surveyed online, and if you've participated in particular ways, well, perhaps, you know, state agents can come knocking at the door. Yeah, but don't, sometimes, some of our municipal partners in the grant think that's a win. Yeah. They think that's participation. Yeah. They think, why should we have you participate deliberatively when we know your urban mobility? Uh, yeah. We, you know, don't tell us what you want the transportation, the public transportation system to do. We will just track you, and we'll find out where the bottlenecks are. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, the city actually, or the state, could turn around and see those digital breadcrumbs as public participation. Which forces us to rethink the nature of participation yeah. in, in terms of political theory. Like, yeah, you know, um, and in that case, certainly, you know, the work that's been done, a lot of work's been done there in uh, in Colombo and Sri Lanka, actually, right, in terms of using mobile mobile phone data sets precisely for that, in terms of flows of, of populations in and out of cities and such, right. Um, so it is, you know, I come back to what I said earlier. There are no easy answers right now, mm -hmm. right, um, and that we, you know. I think we need to be very cautious of any sort of, you know, simple solutions or simple explanations or those that are touting simple solutions and simple explanations. Well, that's all for today, but please join me in thanking Renee Sieber and Daniel Pare for their participation. GeoThoughts are brought to you by geothink.ca and generous funding from Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council.
GeoThoughts are brought to you by geothink.ca and generous funding from Canada's Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council.